Welcome to the next episode of Made for More. We're focusing here together on how it is that we mobilize all of God's people, God's way. I want to thank you. I know a bunch of you when registering today, uh, there are gremlins in the system and you're here. And I want to thank the Expo team for their Herculean effort behind the scenes. Well done, especially Brooks, who is the master and commander of time and space. Get it, Brooks. Brooks is the man. If you've not met Brooks, well, you probably won't because he's actually the man behind the curtain running everything. Uh, and today we have the joy, the privilege, the blast of having Brian Sanders. Hey, sir. Hey, man. Good to see so you. So glad you're here. Uh, many of you have read Brian's books, uh, The Underground Church, uh, Microchurch. We're going to talk about another book he's got coming out a little bit later today. Uh, one of the founders of the Tampa Underground and also the Underground Network. Brian, what are you up to right now? You've got some new stuff cooking. Fill people in on what's happening. Well, it's it's complicated, but I'm right now I've taken a position with the National Christian Foundation, and I'm sort of helping stir up what they're calling collaborative communities or alliances around causes. So it's like kingdom givers and kingdom implementers kind of coming to the table and doing some creative stuff. So at least for the time being, that's what I'm doing. And it's pretty, pretty energizing at the moment. Yeah. Well, congrats, man. That sounds like um, a beautiful fusion of people, ideas, and resources for kingdom advancement. So yeah. look forward to hearing more about it. Hey, today, uh, my dog just came in my studio. If you heard him, <laughs> Atticus, he's the best. Uh, but today we're talking about shift number two. We're working our way through the Made for More framework on mobilization. And uh, last week we met with Jeff Vanderstelt. We talked about the shift from more effort to more Jesus. And we saw this incredibly compelling vision for the church that we are the fullness of him who is feeling everything every way. So it's this vision of total gospel saturation of our soul saturated with the gospel, with the, our city saturated with the gospel, with the entire cosmos eventually being healed by the gospel. And it's the biggest vision for the church that's ever hit the planet. So the question is, if I'm a church leader, um, one way I can respond is, listen, listen, I, I can't get enough volunteers for the nursery in the third service, let alone join Jesus in filling everything every way. And I know we won't come out and say it that way, but I have to admit there've been times in my journey in the past where I was like, Lord, I just want you to fill the seats in this building. Mm -hmm. I, I really hope we get to fill the offering this week. And by no means do I want to condemn anybody. Uh, but the reason we're doing the show is so that we can say, Lord, stretch us, take us farther. So we've, if we have this incredible vision of gospel saturation. How exactly are, are we supposed to come up with some strategy to help all of God's people fill everything every way with Jesus in our city? Here's the good news. You don't have to. It's not your job. <laughs> That's above your pay grade. Jesus is the one who's distributing his people. In every corner of culture, every sphere of society, our job is to equip. And today we're going to look at how do we equip people to discover what we call their masterpiece mission? Uh, calling is not reserved for saints. It's not reserved for professionals. It's for all of God's people. And we literally, I can't think of a better person uh, for us to talk to about this today than Brian Sanders. Um, Brian, before we jump into the topic, we have to ask some very important questions first. Oh, boy. Okay. 
So a little bird told me recently you've been basically going back in the time machine and listening to all your favorite artists from the 90s. And well, in particular, even some, some Christian artists. So I'm wondering, are you getting down on some DC talk? Are you <laughs> heaven bound? What are you even listening to, bro? <laughs> What's in the time warp, time first, capsule? What are you even listening to? First of all, I don't know where you get these dirty rumors. From um, Taylor. He told me you've right been to going old school. You've been listening to some early. Why would things. Taylor tell you that? Honestly, guys, think of something else to talk about. In truth, what are you been listening did, to? I did. I did. I had a conversation with, uh, with someone on the team here that's considerably younger than me. And I mentioned the, the band Delirious. Do you remember the band Delirious? Okay. I love and Delirious. He had I never heard it. of Delirious, and I was just, I was just, you know, scandalized by that. So, did I, you ask? Did you ask this person? Do you want to go deeper? <laughs> do you want to be a history maker? Wow! Look at you dropping the. Record. I was a super fan, man. <laughs> yeah, you. I love Martin Smith. I love his voice. I love his heart. I love his song. So yes, I did start going down a little memory lane. I put it on sort of shuffle delirious and i got i got swept away for a couple days but i'm back nice (laughs) okay one other question on this topic yeah so let's say it's 95 1995 you could be in any band what band would it be and what would you be playing what would be your role would you be lead vocalist (laughs) would you be playing bass (laughs) would you play guitar what's the band and what 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 player on the team would you be in this band any band. 95, I mean, though. It's got to be from 95. Got to be 95. I mean, I was going to say Radiohead. Um, what's the bass player's name? Johnny? No way. Yeah. Maybe maybe playing bass for Radiohead. That's gutsy, bro. That's like saying you want to be Bono and you too. <laughs> what am I supposed to say? You want like, to be Lenny? What? <laughs> I was supposed to pick a lame group? I don't understand. What? Plus, you know, you got a lot of future ahead of you if you pick. That's right. Hey, by the way, if you're listening, get ready with your questions uh, because we want to hear those. We want to want to take your questions into this conversation today. But I think, Phipps, you got an important question, I think. Relevant. I do. I do. I do. So, Brian, uh, it's the Tampa Underground. So I'm assuming that's Tampa, Florida, home of the Buccaneers, who I understand are playing – in a football game this coming mm-hmm. Sunday against Kansas. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait a minute. The Woo! reigning world Chiefs. champion, Kansas yeah. city chiefs road to repeat. And you guys have the goat and we have apparently little goat. What is your forecast for the game? Most important question of the day. Well, I, I guess my question, question to you guys would be what's it like to have a to have a city that just has one championship oh we have two we have two yeah we have two (laughs) so you need to be a better interviewer mr sanders like gather your information (laughs) and be correct when you when you come well i said look i said uh i said tom brady is probably good for 30 points and uh if if kansas city can score more than that against the defense which they probably will they will then you'll win and uh, if they can't, then you'll lose. It's that simple. It's good. I'm excited. It's going to be a fantastic game. First time Tampa's ever had a game or any any uh, Super Bowl play, uh, team is playing at home. So it's I've fun. been to Raymond James Stadium. It's a beautiful place. Should be fire. 
should be fire. That makes it's sense. It's a really cool moment for mission too. Like it's, it's I'm, I'm sure you guys feel it. It's like everybody just will talk to each other. There's yes. a sense of like unity. And of course, if you win, man, you got to be ready to like bond with your neighbors and stuff. So we're actually going to, we're actually going to project the game on my garage door outside just so that we're as public as we can be. And, mm. and just to, if, cause you know, if you win, it'll just be a moment with each other and a, a moment to bond and connect and stuff, which I think, I think would be really, really cool. Everyone last year. Mission potential um, too. So. I, I got pulled over, but I won't even talk to you about it. Last year, Kansas City was lit up. Royals, the Chiefs. Yeah. It's cool. All right. So yeah, it's cool. yeah. let's uh let's get on with the uh, kind of the agenda of the day. Rob started this with a, a a big claim, basically saying Jesus is sitting here and he's ready at the point where he has already uh distributed gifts. He's just waiting for us to help people discover the gifts, their the their their passion areas, their calling, uh the masterpiece mission that we're talking about. That's a magical theme. And it's a huge claim with that magical theme to say that he that Jesus can actually fill everything in every way uh through these masterpiece missions. So just wanted to start by asking you when in your journey, um, whether it be like in your leadership journey or in your just an early years of pursuit of Jesus, when did you start seeing the distinction between uh, volunteers, simply for volunteers sake, like the slots inside of the four walls of the church, volunteers versus masterpieces and know something has to change. If you don't mind just kind of sharing, when did that start in that story for us? I'm probably probably when I was a pretty young uh, missionary person uh, doing parachurch ministry work, urban missionary work. Um, I was a called person. You know, that was clear for me and on my life and the people I was running with. And when I came to church, you know, when I came to a church service or something, I think I often felt overlooked um maybe even pulled away from that calling um in other words to be in the church meant being pulled into its gravity into its centrifugal force into its orbit you know and i didn't love that i, I, fe I felt like something was wrong about that something was was off i love the people there there's one church I'm, I'm thinking of in my mind right now i loved i loved the times of worship I, I needed that as a missionary person, mm. but everything else about the ecosystem itself was disempowering for us as missionary people. You know, it sucked us into its its sort of Christian world. It's 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 the programs and issues and concerns of the church and pulled us away from our calling, really, to the mission of God. Um, so, so it's like they wanted our extra time. They wanted our money. <laughs> they wanted, and you know, we didn't make much money to begin with. <clears throat> they wanted our attention to be on their programs, the growth, the life of the church. Um, and it was, pro it was probably then that I started imagining, maybe even dreaming, uh, of what a church form could look like that helped people do what they were called to do and didn't compete with that. Mm -hmm. At least just was neutral towards it. You know, um, 
I think, I mean, guys, I think there's a distinction that if you, you know, to use your language between volunteers and mission or masterpiece or whatever, the distinction probably you're making is rooted in what social psychologists would call locus of control. Um, so, so is your locus of control internal or is it external? Um, you know, who's in charge essentially of your time and allocation and what it means to be a disciple and what it means to be obedient and so forth. Is that internal or is that externalized? Um, and so when we think about, I think when we think about people as volunteers, essentially like cogs in the machine, in the wheel, the machine or whatever, um, manpower for our programs, the locus of control is external. You, you, what you're talking about is an external locus of control. And I think external locus of control is problematic in a number of ways for, for Christians, you know, for Christian theology, for um, not the least of which it's godlike. You know, it's, 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 we don't want to set up the church or its infrastructure or its leaders in a way that makes it compete or be a rival for the voice of God in your life. So it is possible that the church is saying, do this, give money to this, come and spend your time here, and God might be saying something else. And so then what do you do? Then, then essentially you, you have this, this competition. And that, that can happen when you're not consulted, you know, when your own internal, uh, inner life with God is not, is not, a, it's not a factor. It's not a variable. Um, and I think churches that operate at, with an external locus of control like that, they compete for our affection. They compete for our attention. They compete for our loyalty, which maybe should be reserved for God alone. You know, that Christ in you, the, the Holy Spirit's counselor, these realities, I think, express an internal locus of control. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that you're the master of your own destiny and it's about self-centeredness or like I just listen to myself and my own counsel. It's about that that somehow the 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 heart of God, the mind of God, the calling of God, the voice of God is rooted in an, in our inner life somehow. And each of us in our own way has to hear the voice of God call us, stir us, compel us. In that in that sense, it's so personal. You know, our, our relationship with God is not it, cults are external locus of control, right? The, the the leader tells everybody what to do and they just do it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what they feel, it doesn't matter what they want. There's a mediator somehow telling everybody what God wants, and you yeah. need that kind of mediator. Well, this is this is the thing about the gospel, right? There is no there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, which is Christ Jesus, who is in you. Yeah. Right? Who you have this personal friendship with this personal relationship that reminds me a little bit of like daniel pink's thinking about uh what he calls intrinsic or extrinsic motivation so so the second problem with an external locus of control is it doesn't work you know it's it's such an unreliable ineffective form of leadership because people don't really want to do it so if you keep if you have to keep convincing people over and over and over again to get on board with the program it's it's so labor intensive right it is i think you're describing too the way so many exhausted church leaders feel it's like i feel like i'm have to be a cheerleader i have to keep right pumping people up and I, i imagine some of you right now who are listening to brian you know this is the splinter in your mind Mm-hmm. You know, you're exhausted and uh, we understand your intent is not to be God for your congregation. And yet I remember being at a place in my life where I was a part of this, you know, two or three months a year, part of this disciple making movement in India and watching ordinary people do extraordinary things. 
like I remember this woman, Martha, who's a stay-at-home mom. She lived on an interstate, uh, a lot of sex trafficking, sent her kids to school, and she started just building her rhythms of life around the sex workers, taking tea with them, getting their groceries together for their children and so forth. And in the matter of a year and a half, she had a network of three microchurches, and they'd started a new business, a tailoring business, that was now employing the women who had met Jesus and were out of the sex trafficking industry. And I remember having a moment thinking, if Martha was in my church in Indiana, she'd probably just be a volunteer in children's ministry. Cause she would be hearing ministry equals volunteerism. And I had to repent, <laughs> you know, I'd say, okay, there's something wrong. And if, if that's where you're at, if you're feeling that tension, just like a loving reminder, you know, to start by turning back to Jesus and saying, Lord, why is this splinter in my mind? What do I need to see? You know, and one important question is uh, it gets to, okay, so what's the difference between, uh, let's say, volunteering and a calling? Um, you know, Ephesians 2.10 is sort of our anchor for this shift that it says very clearly that we are God's masterpiece. So that's a corporate identity that we're created to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So one of the things that's in, implicit in that is, okay, there's this masterpiece that is God's body in each part is been designed to be a part of that masterpiece. So that means you're a masterpiece. I'm a masterpiece. And we have a part of this mission that's been prepared in advance. So if, if do you have like a pithy uh, definition of calling? Like, how do you define personal calling? I'm curious. I mean, in one sense, calling is an invitation from God. You know, it's, <clears throat> it's, it's the voice of God speaking your name, inviting you, you know, into something to, to be called in that sort of rudimentary sense has to, it's, 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 it's an acoustic event, right? It's, it's about hearing something. Um, now, of course we hear God in a number of ways. Um, I mean, I was just thinking about this this morning. Like, I don't know of a more powerful or clear moment of articulated calling than Luke chapter four, where Jesus says, and so, so if, if you can say this about your own life, this is pretty, pretty remarkable when he says the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to do something yeah. you know, that, that, that the filling in of that blank, mm. like the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to do something. So it's like, I think that the two kind of like profound connotations of calling are intimacy Mm. and purpose and I, th I think a lot of what we do with calling unfortunately is we jump straight to purpose the sense of like man i have some, there's something for me to do in the world I, I everybody in fact that i would say those are the two core longings of the, the human heart <laughs> is, is to be known and 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 sort of appreciated and loved and and have intimacy and also to have significance that purpose that like you were made for something or you're not you're not a waste of space in the world right um and, and, and calling accomplishes both at the same time, simultaneously, because, you know, if, if, if we call our kids, like if I shout out, which I still do, if I, if I shout one of my kids' names, of course, they're supposed to come to me, right? The whole point of shouting their name is they're meant to get up from wherever they are and get over here, you know, get to me. 
But think of all that implies. It implies I know them. First of all, I know who to call. I know a name. I know them by name. And that implies intimacy, friendship. It implies previous relationship, all that. But they know they're meant to get up and come to me. And, and so the first connotation of calling, isn't it, isn't it to him? Actually, it's to him, to come to him, to be related to him, to be, to be in love with him and be loved by him. And, and all that that does to free us, to, to, you know, I don't know, when that affection is set upon us, what it does to us psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, and then, of course, if I call my kids, it's because I have something I want them to do. I have something in particular I need them to go get or answer or something. So, yes, there is also purpose. There's also assignment, Right. And I feel that in Luke four, like where Jesus is sort of like the spirit mm-hmm. of the Lord is with me. Like I am, I feel this, this, this oneness, this partnership, this, 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 you know, unbreakable communion with, with God. Um, but he, but he's actually anointed me to go do something that that's the spirit is on me for a reason, you know, mm-hmm. to go do something. It, isn't that what calling is? Amen. Absolutely. Brian, we got a question that's in the chat here, uh, and I'm going to kind of frame it a little bit. Uh, You've talked about having, you know, what what kind of control are we looking for? And it seems to be an either or so far. Uh, It's either internal control that they have directly through the spirit or it's external control that we try to provide for them. And, uh, and the assumption is in most churches that are volunteer intensive, that it's mostly that external uh, lotus, locus of control. And the question from Tyler is, do you think you can accomplish releasing people into their masterpiece mission, readying missionaries in a traditional attractional ecosystem? Uh, meaning are there traditional gathered churches and then there are micro churches? Is there a third hybrid way where you're kind of leveraging perhaps an attractional traditional model in order to uh, a volunteerism in order to move people to a more low uh, uh, internal locus of control. I, yeah, I, I would, I would definitely uh, encourage us not to try to conflate those two things. And I would not see them as a progression but having said that, of course, it's possible that God has called people into children's ministry, and He's actually telling people to be ushers or preach on platforms. And and to the degree to which God has called people to do that, do it. You know, don't let someone like me tell you not to do it. Don't don't let anyone tell you not to do it. You know, exactly. it's like have you heard Have you heard God leads you to apply your life and skills and talents in a certain way? Then do it. And lots of people are going to work within a system. They're going to God is going to call people to be supportive you know ligaments and so forth within existing systems nothing wrong with that that's perfectly yeah but the issue is the issue is you don't tell people that's all they can do and you you need everybody sort of will stand before god one day who's 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 created an ecclesial system and they'll have to say was there other options like if god what if, if someone came to you and said i feel like i'm supposed to help kids that are at risk in our city i feel like that's what i'm supposed to do with my time and money and you say back to them well we don't do that here or that's not the vision of this church so minimal we're just not going to support you but but worst case scenario, we're actually going to discourage you from doing that because you need to get on board with the pastor's vision or you need to get on board with the church's vision or whatever. I think that's a scandal. So while I'm, I can be 
open to the possibility that God is calling people in a traditional, attractional church approach to ministry, then you should obey that calling, you know. But also, if someone comes to you and they feel God calling them something very meaningful and beautiful and mission and very biblical and all that, and you don't have space for that, and you don't have a way to fund it or support it or encourage it or train into it or whatever, then you're dropping the ball. Yeah, you know, Brian Phipps, I'm going to throw this back at you. Um, you know, Brian and I were both on staff at a very large attractional church and we created a calling discovery process. We trained calling coaches. Uh, we, we created a simple calling deployment process and then we created environments where people could be equipped. And so I just want to say, yes, you can do this, you know, and Brian, I want to sort of pass it back to you. Um, we helped hundreds and hundreds of people find their calling at Westside. Talk about sort of those dynamics, like how it happened, and then some of the tension points, you know, because uh, we started to have new metrics like an attrition metric, right. which right. most yeah. people don't have. So I want you to explain that. Well, yeah, I mean, we always looked at our volunteer. Well, I wouldn't say always. I mean, I learned this in the process of being dissatisfied with the fact that we were finally connecting people to God. Like, I accidentally, you know, unintentionally, sort of intentionally, but I didn't even have the language like external and internal locus of control. Uh, but we were helping people become more dependent upon the spiritual leadership in their life than ours. Like our job was to equip them to connect to him and to grow from him. And when that started to happen, I started to see these people whose imagination for their personal calling exceeded my ability to adequately support them other than to cheerlead them. And they looked at me and said, well, that's all I want. That's all I need. Uh, and then I'm like, talk about that inspiration, like that intrinsic motivation that you talked about earlier. I've witnessed that uh, in so many ways. And so I was convinced that um, I had volunteer roles that I had to get people to, but I wanted to leverage those volunteer roles as simply a first step to understanding that they do have personal calling. You step into that to the point, I and mean, this worked so well, we actually measured our attrition rate, not just with the people that dropped off because they moved or they got sick or they got bored or whatever it was, but how many do we attrit to a further step toward their personal calling? And that became our number one metric for health. How many are we graduating from our volunteer posts into their volunteer mission? Because we saw their commitment in a, in a mega church system. We saw their commitment to step up and volunteer as a sign that we might want to invest in them as a disciple. And so we strategically leveraged that uh, successfully. Yeah, if That's we can reimagine volunteer mm -hmm. systems as like a boot camp, a short-term boot camp, mm -hmm. yeah, or like a school where you're learning best practices, mm -hmm. Um, but it can't become the end zone. When it becomes the end zone, then it is scandalous. Mm -hmm. Then we're going to be domesticating God's people into a cul-de-sac. Uh, but our mobilization pathways don't have to end at volunteerism. It should be just a little step in the beginning. Yeah. And that's where we can really, really, really start to make a difference uh, and help people see that. Brian, have you told us your own personal calling? Like, yeah. What I love about that is you've made it so personal and because that's the inspiration. That's what gets you up in the morning. People start to wake up with this uh, reason for living. It's because they've heard the voice of God, you know, say, I want you, I know you, uh, you're mine. But then that, that assignment that you talk about, what's your assignment and how has that evolved over the years? It's funny. I've only, I've only been asked that like twice. The last time it happened was actually at one of the um, 
cohort things when exponential came to the Tampa and I was, I was really caught off guard by the question. Um, and I didn't want to answer it. I, I didn't, I, it's something I've been processing. Like why even now I don't want to answer the question. Um, I'm not sure why, maybe because it, it is so personal. It feels mm. so it, it's, it's almost like, you know, naked or something really exposing something that's, that's so treasured or personal close to my heart. Um, and I will say too, like in, in regards to the, the book I'm writing, you know, I, I think that one of the, the discoveries that I've had is that, that calling is not static. It's not a static thing or a static idea, but it's a dynamic idea. Mm. And so trying to understand that and unpack that, that there is a thread that goes, a sort of calling thread that goes through our lives. And for me, I mean, even, even when I was 19, I, I, I wrote out kind of what I thought was my life calling, which is something like, um, <laughs> I know you're already laughing. You haven't even heard it. We're already laughing, but you know it's 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 actually sort of stood the test of time. It was, it was to influence as many people as possible to surrender their lives to Jesus and His kingdom, something like that. Um, and so, you know, in there is the idea of influence, which has something to do with leadership. It's it's about surrender. Um, that actually the lordship of Jesus was going to be was going to be a major theme of the work of my life, you know, and the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom somehow, and all that that means, like Luke four, for example, it just it it, it sends shivers down my spine even when I read it again this morning. Mm. So, you know, th- that would be sort of a. I still feel it. I still feel like I'm supposed to influence people. But what's interesting is the way that 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 evolves with the stages of life you're in, with the season of life you're in, and how there's kind of commonalities to our the flow of a human life. Um, and that so that looked like early on um, incarnation, you know, grassroots college ministry, urban ministry uh, for for a decade or more, and then it looked like starting the underground, which which interesting enough is like pulling away from influence, pulling away from a big platform or big profile, because I wanted to, it was like, I was playing a long game, you know, like I wanted to influence a, a, a small community of people in such a profound way that it would maybe become an archetype for something else and have a bigger impact. So I got, in a sense, I got quieter and smaller to have greater influence. And now I feel a, a sense of calling as a, as a kind of mentor uh, to younger leaders and so that the assignment kind of changes around, but for me, it's always going to be about influence and not, so that doesn't mean upfront leadership. Like it's not come to me. It's, it's, it's like, I'm trying to move the pieces of the puzzle somehow. So it's, it's a personal question. It's an interesting question. And I applaud you for asking, even though it does, it does make me a little bit uh, squeamish, but um, yeah. Well, Brian. I giggled. Hold on just one second, Rob, and I'll toss it back to you. I just wanted to say the reason I giggled is because I could just feel the evolution. Um, like when I think back about my the calling that I had when I was, you know, 25, like 15, 25 years ago, I guess I'm 50 now, so that's 25 years ago, is so rudimentary, it's so grade school. Um, I'm almost embarrassed of even what I thought was the big dream you know, uh, 15 years ago, because that long obedience in that same direction, mm-hmm. my, my experience has been, and I'm assuming yours as well, is that there are several moments along the way where the next phase of that invitation or assignment uh, just kind of takes your breath away. And you're like, no, no, not capable. And then that obedience just moves you forward. So I'm, I'm just kind of picturing folks on the call going, okay, you guys are talking way, way up here. How do we do that? And 
And to me, the, just going back and reviewing the whole line of this calling thing, was this just one step of obedience after the other that's accumulated over time and led to something that pretty significant. And I felt you about to answer something in that way, which made me yeah, giggle. I just wanted to explain that. So tossing it to you, Rob, sorry. No apologies. Powerful. This is a big part of my story. It's a big part of everybody's story that we can help them walk into. It's that rich. It is. It, it's what back to the intimacy theme that's first in calling. It's like, I just need to stay on the heels of Jesus. Hmm. Like who else has the words of life? Everything hmm. else is rubbish. I just need. And then you look at, you keep doing that. And suddenly you look up, you're like, I can't believe where I'm at, what I'm doing right now. You know, and it never ceases to amaze, amaze you. Um, in fact, Brian, sometimes you end up saying, I could sing of your love forever. <laughs> you, you and your dad jokes, man. You just, I know it's an art. It's an art. Um, it's something. So your books have been profoundly influential in my life. For example, Kansas City Underground. Um, so when you have a book come out, it's, it's a big deal to me. Uh, so I'm very excited about this book on personal calling. Um, can you share like the title? When is it coming out? And some of the seminal ideas that have been in the crock pot that are now going to be served. Yeah, I think I think it's just kind of watch helping people discover their calling. You know, hundreds of people over time, and then and seeing how that sort of hits us at different phases of our life. I realize that that calling is something that's dynamic, not static. It's not something you get when you're 20 and you just hold it for the rest of your life. Um, I think that's way too much pressure to put on a 20 year old, first of all. Um, but, you know, it evolves with us and with the stages of life that we go through. So it's a little bit of a kind of a psychosocial developmental lens Um that that kind of our calling tends to 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 have commonalities in different phases of our lives, um, but essentially what I've what I've my theory and what I've identified is like six major transitions. So you know you you, you sort of alluded to it, Brian. But so I, I'm thinking of it as like a, if you think of your life as a week, you know, seven days that you have these sort of six six days of of calling, and so I'm I'm breaking those up into like twelve year periods. Um, and how they, they have these sort of, God is expecting something different from us when we're 12 than when we're, you know, 48. And, and, and because we're in, we're in these kind of similar phases of life, we also hit these major transitions. So, so like, a, like, which I actually think start with an identity crisis. It starts with a sense of like, who am I now? So all your kids leave home, for example. And you're left with sort of an empty nest and you're saying, well, who am I now? You lose your job, you get cancer, your parents die. There's all these kind of things that happen to us in life. You move to a new city and those things bring you back to the table in a sense with God to say, who am I now? Who am I now? I knew where I was in this last 10 years, but who am I right now? And you don't know. And this is the beauty of it, this sort of calling cycle where you can be 48. And, and come back like when you were 24 and come back to the presence of God and say, God, who am I? What do you want for my life? And that's actually not a mistake. That's exactly by design the way it's supposed to happen. So you sort of start with a crisis. If you can imagine a circle, you start with a crisis, which then sends us back into intimacy. 
who, where do we turn? You just said it, Rob. Like, who, who do I go to to know what I'm supposed to do next and who I actually am at this phase of my life? Or what's what, what lies ahead? Or what do you want from me? There's only one person to turn to, so we turn there. And there's a renewal in that, a renewal of intimacy with God. And then from there, I think we get identity. So it's like crisis, intimacy, identity. He said, this is who you are. Don't forget this is who you are. This is who I've made you, right? And then out of identity comes a refreshed sense of purpose or an assignment or calling. But that's the last part of the cycle. And that lasts, in my view, about 12 years. Hmm. So it's not like you have to ask God every single day, what am I supposed to be doing in my life? That, that wouldn't work, right? But it's also not something that you only ask once in your life. That's not so mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I'm right. I don't know if there's these six major transitions, but it's not one and it's, and it's not, you know, a thousand mm-hmm. it's, it's something else, but these, I think these cycles tend to happen. They tend to be good. They, they revive our, our life with God. They open us up to new things. And so you can feel the, almost the, the Renaissance, the, the same feeling you felt when you were 24 yeah. and when you're 36 and when you're 48 and when you're 60, you can feel again. Uh, the same, same sort of launching back into an assignment with God. But what I think is interesting and, and what I try to flesh out in the book is how, how similar those are by age, you know, actually. That the, that the 24 to 36-year-old is kind of typically called to, to, to do some of the same things. So, I, I've created some hmm. – sort of terms around what that that tends to look like uh, so obviously whenever it comes out people can just read it and have their own opinion on it um you know maybe it's maybe it's all garbage uh but, no, but this already is, that that framework <laughs> took me back to four or five key moments in my life right away like yeah, that's exactly yeah. what god did so it, at the very least i think we need to recognize that these these things happen and they're very healthy you know the you know some of what's been called like a midlife crisis or something like that is really better to look at or the midlife malaise, which comes along with that sense of like, have I accomplished what I was meant to? Our life can feel like a disappointment, that kind of thing. Uh, The truth is it's perfectly healthy and perfectly normal. And if, and if you are, if your life is hidden with God in Christ, it actually is, is a beautiful mechanism to bring us back to him. And back to that place of searching. So, so you could do like a calling lab or one of our calling experiences that you guys do or whatever, and you can have a 48-year-old and a 24-year-old, and they're just like right at the same place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the coolest thing because they're both going, who am I and what do you want to do with my life? Because everything is on the table right now, you mm-hmm. know, and we, that happens to us. It's kind of like the, uh, I'm thinking of Piaget's life stages. Like there's consistent exactly. themes that, that that happen at certain ages, and uh, you don't want to get to the very end where you have either um, you know integrity or versus despair. I think is the last one. And Solomon, when he writes the you know his book on wisdom, gosh, what is it called? Ecclesiastes. He's basically in this regret phase. You yeah. know, despair face because he didn't accomplish uh, in the in the days that he had. So, Brian, one of the things I love about when I get to listen to you read read from you, uh, whatnot, is just I, every time I go back, there's an extra layer of wisdom that you've brought in. It's clear God's taught you this, and you've shared a lot of really rich wisdom that if you haven't been a part of this personal calling conversation, may not have a file or a place to land yet, because this really is an intense uh, level of things that you're sharing, I believe. Uh, So let's go back and um, 
let's try to 101 this a little bit more. When you're engaging church leaders, where do you recommend they start when it comes to helping people discover and be deployed in their personal calling? Well, of course, there's, there's lo- loads of wonderful resources out there that that attempt to um, help people triangulate or figure out, hear God in their calling. Um, I kind of don't, I kind of think they're all fine. You know what I mean? Like actually the tool is way less important than the two. The two things you need are time to listen and courage to act. And if you'll bring those almost to any curriculum, you know, I, there's, there's a really cool curriculum out of, I think, um, Stanford. There's a, there's a couple guys there that do a class called Designing Your Life. And they took sort of design school ideas and built it into this sort of, I mean, it's like personal calling kind of curriculum. I, I think that could work too. Like if you're praying through it or whatever. Right. Yeah, the Spirit is still working. You know, I think the tools may be less important than the sense of time, like setting aside serious mm-hmm. intentional time for your people and for yourself and then the courage to act. So what's interesting, and I don't know what you guys' experience has been, but helping kind of hundreds of people go through our calling lab stuff is like people will, it, it's, a, it's a rich, beautiful day or they spent two days or whatever we do on it. And it's like, this was, this was incredible. This was like, eye-opening. I've learned so much about myself, but they still don't want to take that last step to say, this is my calling. I think I'm called to this. So we forced them essentially to, to fin to fill in the sentence. You know, I believe God is calling me to, because man, there's just that fear. So it's, what's so bizarre is that we have such a longing to have an answer to this question and such a reluctance to mm. answer it. You know, so so there's some there's some kind of diabolical, almost demonic wall that exists right at the threshold of saying, of articulating, mm. God has actually called me to orphans. God has actually called me into this kind of leadership. God has actually called me to do this because as soon as we say it, we it's like we implicitly know we're on the hook. You're on the hook, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's universal, yeah. Or, or, or maybe it's like FOMO or something where it's like, if I say this, then I can't change it later to something else. Or what if I don't like this one and I want to switch to a different major or whatever. Um, and so, I mean, I just think some of it is time, but I mean, if I were to say, what are kind of the rudiments of a time like that or a, a discovery process? I think you have to look at, um, you have to look at, you know, our, our histories, our personal life histories, because a lot of times our callings are rooted in something that's happened to us, like an experience, both good or bad. It, mm-hmm. it, it just makes us uniquely equipped in mission in that area. You know, something is as hard as say cancer. Like if you're a cancer survivor, you have the potential to be in ministry to people who have cancer. And the truth is, if you're not a cancer survivor, you kind of don't. You're, you're just not going to have the same kind of credibility. I, I think another thing is opportunity. Like, where do we have opportunity to take the time to look around our lives and say, where is there just low-hanging fruit or where are there people that need Jesus that I have access to, that other people don't have access to? And you have to take that seriously as a kind of clue towards your calling. Um, I think, it, you know, uh, what, what we would call emotional responsiveness. So I think a lot of like, not everything in the world that's wrong makes me mad. Or, or gives me an emotional reaction, but some things do. And sometimes I get really, really, you know, wound up about certain things. And, and I think at times that can be 
like a sign yes. of God's God's work inside of you, you know, to say, why does that bother you so much? Because maybe you're meant to be part of the solution, or actually maybe that's his heart expressing itself through you. So paying attention to our emotional life and our response to the world around us, counselor input, like what do people who love you and who love Jesus and who know you say you're good at, say you should be doing with your life. Now they're not God, so they don't get to, they don't have the final word, but, but you should listen, you know? So I think those are little elements probably that anybody could, could get a group together for a weekend or something like that and say, we're just going to seek God we're going to look at these elements of our own lives for, for clues as to what he's saying to us, where, where he's leading us, and then have the courage to, to, to say it out loud in the end, mm. an act of faith, you know? So good. Okay. I have a question for both of you for the Bryans. Um, and this is coming in from the chat. How would you suggest going about pulling leadership into this conversation? volunteers to masterpieces it seems as if we're trying to do a 180 on a massive cruise ship so i this is my imagination i could be wrong um but it sounds like here's a person who's probably on staff and they're seeing this and they're feeling it and they want this for the people that they're influencing and serving and leading but they're looking at the rest of the leadership team and maybe even a lead pastor doesn't really seem to be on their radar yet. So what would you two recommend um, to a person like that? They've got influence, they're probably a staff person, um, and maybe they're kind of the first person who's noticing this sort of anomaly in the system. How do they start? Where do they go? What's the, what do you guys think? Thoughts? I, 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 I pass. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my one chance to shine, right? <laughs> I have no idea what you do in that situation. Uh, Rob, the thing that comes to my mind is the transition bell curve. You know, a lot of people, when they get an idea like this, they try to take it big. Um, and that only meets a bunch of resistance because if it's a new idea that's a splinter in your mind that you can't clearly flesh out and all those other things, um, you need to be a, a part of a discovery process with a few people uh, to, to start to flesh it out. The transition bell curve basically says that, you know, about 2.3% of an organization's uh, uh, participants or makeup uh, are innovators that even think along this way or are willing to entertain a splinter like this. And those innovators have to work with the early adopters, which is only like 11 or 12 more percent. And so early conversations start very small with a very few to explore. And then it's the stories of that process of discovery that end up starting to work its way into the early majority, which is still only another 32 or so percent. Um, and you can look at that bell curve to get more details, but I would start, I would say start by um, a small percentage of people as high up in the um, decision maker chain as you possibly can and just ask, do you share a similar splinter? Are you exhausted? Do you feel like you're having to pump up this machine? Do you think you can sustain this until you're uh, retired? Do you really, is this the extent of the legacy that we want to leave behind in this organization? And, and ask questions instead of making declarations, just ask those kind of questions. And from there, begin to ask, you know, where is this working? 
Give me stories of people who went from volunteer to Masterpiece Mission. Who are the thousands of people like our story with Andy or our story with Carol, these people that are making influence on thousands and thousands of people now because they made that shift and and shalom is just breaking free through them. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go investigate some of those stories. And if you're having that level of conversation with a small percentage, you'll have a greater percentage as the as the totality of the innovators start to work with early adapters, and then it works itself on in. So that would be kind of my uh, offhand approach to it. It's great. I, I just I want I would like to concur with my colleague. Uh, also. <laughs> Also, I think I think what Brian's describing is is you know what in developmental theory or change management kind of theory is is incrementalism. So you're talking yeah. about you have to be you, you sort of have to make peace and you have to be comfortable with small victories and 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 a longitudinal view. If you're if you're sort of feeling a lot of anxiety or angst about it and you just think this isn't right we're holding people back from their calling or whatever, then you may have, you may have to, to, to think of another, of a more drastic approach, um, which may include, you know, disentangling yourself from that system. Um, But I think that too feels like guys, like a a dimension of calling. You know, I, I think, I think some people are reformers. They're good at that. They, they take joy in small victories and small steps over long periods of time. They're patient. And other people like me wouldn't be good at that. You know, I would be more trouble than I was worth in the system because I just would be angry all the time or, 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 or holding back my own frustration and feeling like this is too slow. This isn't happening quick enough. Uh, using really strong, unhelpful language, you know. So if, the, if you're that kind of person, you know, do do the system a favor and exit. You know, don't don't be a little time bomb in the thing. That's not you're not. That's not the grace of God. That's not the heart of God. Because as imperfect as that system is, again, presuming the people's hearts are for Jesus, they're trying. So you know, I wouldn't say it's really your place to just be a you know, a little terrorist or something to try to take it apart. But if you feel that strongly about it, then you probably should start something. I mean, my, my argument would be the other, the other possibility is break off and go do something else. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a free person and you're, you're and in Christ, you have that sort of apostolic mandate too, uh, not just to follow instructions or not just to do, you know, sort of submit to the system that you inherited, but actually it's also inside of us to start new things. And and if you can do that with love and with honor toward the thing that you're exiting, that's, that's, that is a viable option for a Christian. It's wisdom. Right on. Such wisdom. So helpful. Brian, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm just wondering if in closing, um, I'll ask both of you, you know, if there's a, you know, one next step or, one resource um, that you would encourage folks to take a look at um, to explore more on helping people to discover and be deployed into personal calling. Um, what would you recommend? I mean, I would recommend this, this really old um, thing called prayer. I just really think it's a, it can't be beaten you know, in terms of its, it, what it delivers and stuff. Again, great books, great resources. We have the calling lab.com. That's a thing you can look at, but the truth is, man, 
right at right at the being heart of this whole discussion is can you just get alone with God and ask Him, Lord, just tell me who I am, you know, and I'm listening, and I, and I and I will linger in Your presence to try to hear You, and I'll take all these other pieces as just you know whatever augmentation of that kind of deeper process. And then the other thing I would just sort of caution, maybe as a final thought or word for church leaders is, you know, just be careful and please don't make calling a tactic for church growth. It's not. And in, in fact, if you took this seriously and you really helped people discover their calling, you will lose people. That's why I love what you said earlier, Brian. It's like, and, and you could take joy in that, not lose them in the sense of like you church make it smaller, but the kingdom will grow bigger. And if that's something that you can be happy about and make peace with your church, what will be left of your church, whatever is left of your church, when everybody's doing what they're supposed to do, what they're actually sent and deployed by God to do, the thing that will be left will be, will have a certain kind of integrity and joy and beauty to it. Mm. And, and that's worth something too, but it won't get bigger. If you do this, I just don't, Maybe it will. Who knows? I, who, who am I to say? But don't. I would say be careful and don't use this as a way to grow your church or as some kind of a tactic, because I, I think in the end it would undermine that goal, undermine that outcome. I think you're right, um, <clears throat> and it goes back to kind of exponentials. Way they've been saying this for the last few years is the Home Depot thing. It's not we can do it and you can help. It's you can do it. That locust of authority really is in you. And that's the only way it's really going to ever come out. Uh, and we're here to help you do that. But what we did find, Brian, is when we had that posture towards people, we had more volunteers than we could use. I people mean. recognize that's the department where they really invest in you and they invite you and level you up. And so while I think if we would have had the goal of department growth with that, it would have backfired. However, with that posture of you can do it, we can help. And we're just a step to help you get there. Yeah. It, uh, we found, we found that we were having good attrition rates in the right way. But the key, the key then, and I, I just, maybe it doesn't need to be said, but I'm going to say it anyway, is you got to mean that, you know, it, it can't just be a slogan or a motto. Yeah. It has to be something that's like deeply ingrained in, in the psyche of your leadership and the motivation of your leadership, yeah. like you truly are servant leaders and you truly want to see people become what God is leading them to be. And whatever that ends up looking like, you will take a deep drink from the sort of well of joy when that happens. And, and no if, if that's real, if that's who you are, then whatever the outcome is, should be fine with you. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. So, so how do they get, um, what's the process of them, con the folks on the call connecting to that calling lab? How do they, what's the approach? Is that a registration, a website? I think it's just a pretty light, loose curriculum. You can just go to callinglab.com. I haven't seen it in a while, um, but it's, I know it's still out there and, and, and you guys have done stuff. There's loads of stuff. I just, I just would stress, like, if you find something that the language clicks with you or with your church or people or whatever, that's great. Just use it. But the end is really the, the application of, you know, coaching and serious time allotment. That's, that's the key. Love it. Rob, I think you pitched that question to me as well. And I did, yeah. uh, I, 
I just put a link in the chat there. Uh, what we're going to be doing right after this call, as soon as this uh, web show is over, I'm going to open up a Zoom uh, room for, with us with Disciples Made, and I'm going to share with you our GPS uh, gold kit, and it's kind of a turnkey off-the-shelf um, thing that you can grab and start to create today a culture of disciple making there. It's kind of a step-by-step. -step. Here's what I would do to kind of reframe yourself and start with those few people and how do you start to approach this? And then how do you start to take it out more department-wide so that we have this posture of these aren't our volunteers. These are God's missionaries in training. How do we share that core DNA? And then how do we start to take this out and perhaps do a weekend campaign that invites people to this? And how do we integrate it with our disciple making processes, the whole thing. So we'll spend 15 minutes after this kind of sharing that with you and then taking some questions. So if you're interested in joining us, we'll do that right after this. Also, we just want to make you aware again that in lieu of a conference uh, that would become a super spreader event, Exponential is wisely offering um, a decentralized approach. And uh, we'll be hosting um, through the spring Exponential roundtables. Uh, there's nine different topics. Uh, already there's been really thoughtfully designed um, kits that have, um, you know, kind of world-class TED Talks and conversation guides. And so if this is something that you would be interested in, uh, opening up some tables, uh, again, in a socially distant and safe way in your context, um, these resources are available uh, for free. So just head to multiplication.org slash host. You'll get all the details and you can be a catalyst. Um, one of the kits um, Brian Phipps and I designed, it's all on this very topic of mobilization. Um, so uh, check it out. Yeah, hopefully it'll be of service to you. And uh, Brian Sanders, again, uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for a life of submission and obedience mm -hmm. to Jesus and, uh, and the fruit of that uh, for the kingdom. And for us, we're, we're really grateful, Brian. Thanks, guys. You bet. Hey, we'll see you in two weeks. Uh, we're going to look at the next shift, which is from more guilt to more love. How is it that we create uh, environments where people learn to do what we really talked about today, to respond to the invitation of Jesus, to abide, to hear his voice, um, to be filled with the fullness of God. Ephesians is clear. He's filling everything every way, but he part of that fullness is you growing in the fullness of God and creating a culture where others can experience that. Uh, so we'll be back again in two weeks, same time, and uh, look forward to seeing you then.